Hey, everyone. You're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. Politics is not something we cover on this podcast, especially in this day and age when everywhere you look, someone has an opinion about the state of politics in the U.S., an opinion about what's right and what's wrong, and even a dispute about what facts really are. Although we've had tangential discussions, it's never been the focus of the show. Usually my hope is to talk to one person every other week, about at least one of the deep interests that they have. I try to get just a little bit of history on the guests to set up their expertise, and more often than not, I'm interviewing someone that I've met before. It turns out that that's where my comfort zone is, although I am honestly trying to branch out to people I don't know at all. Most people I talk to are in the same industry as I am as well. After all, that's what this podcast is about technology, business, and the humans in it. But for today's show, I'm trying something different. We're going to talk politics. Not American politics, but rather South African politics. Although my guest is someone I went to high school with in South Africa, I haven't spoken with him in 25 years. I fondly remember our matric year at Greenside High School And I remember Gareth being our head boy while I served as a prefect with him. I also remember playing cricket with Gareth, something that likely sounds foreign to our mostly U.S.-based audience. Back then, he was a quick-witted, kind young man who led with calm. So my guest today to talk South African politics is Gareth Van Onselen. He obtained a master's degree in sociology from the University of the Witwatersrand, my alma mater as well, and has worked in various capacities, mostly in communications and political analysis for the Democratic Alliance. That's the official opposition party to the African National Congress, or ANC, in South Africa. He writes a weekly column for Business Live in South Africa, and sometimes for the Business Day. His work also appears on Huffington Post. He is a liberal, a humanist, and a published author. I'm so glad that he's agreed to join me on the show live from Johannesburg. Gareth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's a real pleasure to be here, and it's really great to hear your voice again. It's nice to hear your voice again as well. Yeah, it's been a while. It has. Well, let's start with a quick primer for our listeners. I want to kind of set the stage for South African politics as it is right now. So let's go back uh, 20 or so years. Could you tell us a little bit about how South Africa became a democracy? Right. Well, there's um, a very long history to that story. Um, I mean, South Africa was like most countries in Africa, colonized way back in the early sort of 1600s and and there followed sort of three or 400 years of colonial rule. Um, There were various independent unions formed in the lead up to 1994, mostly by um, white Afrikaans 
um, a white Afrikaans minority, and that was formalized in sort of the 1900s. Um, and, and all the way up to 1994, it took on its most pernicious form, um, which was apartheid rule in which South Africa as a union was governed by a minority party, the, the National Party, which was essentially a kind of white um, Christian conservative party and, and obviously deeply uh, enmeshed in racial politics that segregated, segregated the country along racial lines. Um, only white people could vote. And through a whole lot of pressures and international and domestic pressures, much of which was to do with sanctions, a lot of which was to do with the state of the economy, that system eventually collapsed in 1994. And through a series of negotiated outcomes, it was agreed to have democratic elections in 1994. And in 1994, the African National Congress, which had been suppressed and, and operated as an underground movement for, uh, a, uh, I mean, it's a hundred-year organizations, a hundred-year-old organization. So, for a, the vast majority of apartheid, was operating behind the scenes and underground, and led by Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned, came to power in 1994. He became president, and South Africa adopted a constitutional democracy. And that constitutional democracy um, was in the works during those negotiations and in the lead up to the election. Yes. So in it was a period that took a couple of years. So in 1990, the National Party government made a decision to unban the African National Congress uh, and a series of other resistance movements at the time. And that period from around 1990 to 1994 involved a series of intense negotiations in which all parties were brought to the table and all played a role in determining what a, a sort of shared constitution would look like. Uh, the elections were held in 1994 uh, and the final constitution was actually adopted after the elections and formally adopted in 1995 after that. So, you know, the great South African story and, and the reason why it's probably so inspirational to a lot of people outside the country is is because of this transition period, this negotiated peace and settlement with a constitutional democracy being the outcome and, and all parties playing a part in, in a peaceful process to democracy. I remember the process and I remember being scared and um, worried that that bad things would happen. You mentioned the years 90 to 94, with, uh, which overlaps our years in high school exactly. Um, and I remember what it was like living there at the time um, and the fact that it turned out the way that it did in 95 and thereafter is certainly inspirational, as you've said. So Nelson Mandela was then president for five years. That's how long presidents get to be in power in South Africa. And since then, there have been four other presidents. Um, and currently the president is Cyril Ramaphosa. Is that right? Yes, that's that's correct. He's um, been president now for, um, well, he was officially voted into power um, this year, early um, in the May elections. He, he had taken the role as a consequence of his predecessor, Jacob Zuma, being removed from office. Well, he was technically removed as the president of the party, but that obviously had implications for his position as president of the country. So Ramaphosa was president for... Uh, a year or so leading up to these elections. But his first formal term started this year. 
So you just talked about Jacob Zuma and how he was removed as president of the party, which meant also that he would be removed as president. Talk about how those two are related. I, I didn't, didn't think they were. Well, they, there's a good argument to be made that they shouldn't. And one of the big debates in South Africa at the moment is um, this idea that you need, you know, an independent set of elections to elect a president who is not simply the president of a party and, and sort of de facto elected the president of the country in a kind of block voting fashion, which is what's defined every president in South Africa since 1994. Um, but that is the the way in which the African National Congress is organized internally as a movement. It is has a very strict, um, what it calls a democratic centralism uh, culture inside the party where the president of the party becomes the president of the country and it is actually de facto ultimately accountable to the party ahead of the you know, parliament or um, whatever body it is that determines who should be president, and and that's a problem in the country. There there is a kind of a gap between accountability to parliament and the people, and and what parties decide internally and the implications thereof. So, as a voter in South Africa, when you go to the polls and you elect a president, you're not actually voting for the person to be president. You're voting for the party and whoever the party may elect as the leader of that party. That's correct. Um, and, you know, pa- there's sort of a leap of faith because parties will campaign with their presidential candidate. In other words, their leader, will their face will be on posters and they will use that candidate to deliver their core messages. And you're not really in any doubt as to who the president of that party is, but it doesn't mean that the system couldn't be abused, that, that any party could go, we'll decide who the president will be after the election. Um, and obviously, if you care about things like constitutional and democratic checks and balances, uh, you want to prevent the possibility that any party could take advantage of that, uh, dis, um, you know, disadvantage of that or, or abuse that. And, and it is a problem not having a directly elected president, I think. Does that mean that when, uh, when Jacob Zuma resigned, Cyril Ramaphosa was elected by the ANC, became the leader of the ANC, and as a result became the leader of the country? Well, yes, but it actually happened in reverse. So what happened was the (laughs) African National Congress had their internal elections to determine their next leader, which almost always falls a year before our national elections. I mean, they also have theirs on a five-year cycle, just it's, it's set one year ahead of our national elections. And the minute that Jacob Zuma was replaced, he therefore became the de facto president. Uh, Zuma resigned his office on the back of it being untenable for him to be the, um, you know, country's president uh, and not the party president. And Zuma and Cyril Ramaphosa took over from Zuma at that point. So once, um, so the ANC was elected has been elected for numerous terms since the 1994 elections. So four presidents, um, more than four terms. Jacob Zuma completed one term successfully, um, but resigned in the second term. What will he be remembered for? Why did he resign? Why did that happen? Well, Zuma's a fascinating character. And um, I mean, there's a 
widespread and it seems ubiquitous uprising of a kind of demagogic sort of conservative populist wing of politics across the world and various individuals that encapsulate this kind of move. But honestly, Zuma makes them all look like peanuts. The, the guy really? is the, the quintessential example of a, of a populist, of a demagogue, of a kind of person who is primarily subservient to the party and the various ideological and cultural impulses that define the African National Congress, which are often not democratic, certainly not democratic in the sense of the South African constitution. Uh, and I, as a consequence of this, because he favored things like nepotism and patronage and essentially looking after the party's interests and consolidating power ahead of any other obligation to the citizenry, the state sort of fell apart on his watch, uh, primarily because corruption spiraled out of all control, but the actual apparatus of the state, the ability of public servants, um, of positions in the civil service to be um, safeguarded in terms of quality and excellence, all those things fell apart. And there was basically a widespread collapse of the state. And I think that's going to be his, his hallmark. He, he, you're right. He is a fascinating character. And I, um, you've authored a number of books. Uh, you authored one back in 2014. It's titled Clever Blacks, Jesus, and Nkandla, The Real Jacob Zuma in His Own Words. And you were so gracious to mail it to me when I sent you an email begging you for a copy. And I've felt quite guilty <laughs> that I haven't read it <laughs> since you sent it. Um, but I did pick it up for uh, preparation for this podcast. And so um, I've, I'm so glad you um, like sent that to me that I was able to eventually get to read it. Could you spend a minute and just explain the title of the book for a second? Yes, um, sure. Well, so, I mean, J Jacob Zuma is, uh, as I say, a, a fascinating character. He he says a lot of things that are would defy belief. Uh, I mean, through any kind of vaguely reasonable, rational, constitutional lens. And these things, as I, I find is the case with a lot of these kind of international demagogues, to give them a sort of general category, um, are often dismissed on their own terms. In other words, people make excuses when leaders say things that are outrageous or incoherent or seem to defy any sort of basic democratic principle in the sense that they're either being pragmatic or it's not really what they mean or they're just playing some kind of game. In other words, underlying it all is some kind of pragmatic genius who's just using populism and sentiment to, you know, achieve some kind of hard political outcome. And you, you can't see the real genius behind them. And there was a lot of that about <laughs> Jacob Zuma um, when he was first elected. And, you know, the guy would say the most crazy things. And, and this book is essentially a collection of quotes, some of his maddest quotes, of which you know, he said various things about how the ANC is going to govern until Jesus returns. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> um, he said things about in Kandla, which we can maybe talk about in a second, was uh, a homestead that got built for himself in rural KwaZulu-Natal, which is one of South Africa's provinces. 
um, using state funds at the cost of 245 million rand, which is about wow. $20 million. And, you know, he said a whole lot of mad things defending why it was that he deserved this massive mansion at taxpayers' expense. Uh, and Clever Blacks is a reference to his absolute disdain for intelligentsia. He he would, because he was essentially a, a cultural animal, he was deeply invested in, in rural Zulu traditional culture, um, which have a whole lot of problematic belief systems and practices in terms of modern constitutional norms and standards. Um, he, you know, showed a certain amount of disdain for anyone who demonstrated some kind of intellect. And he would say, oh, you know, you think you're a clever black, you know, you know what you're talking about because you've learned all these Western values, but you don't really know what the truth is. And so the book is kind of basically saying you need to take this guy on his own terms. He says these things that are mad, but he's entirely consistent when he says them. He says them often, and these are really what he thinks. And if you try to deflect from these things or pretend they mean something else, you're missing something important about understanding who he is. I love that the book has his words in it verbatim. I love that they are well-sourced, well-referenced, and that you provide the context and opinion around it. Um, I think it's a very well-thought-out way of laying out a reference. Is that how you hope the book is being used as a reference? Yes, I think I think the purpose was twofold. The first one, w which I've spoken to, um, which was to say, you know, you need to take people on their own terms. Um, and the second one was as, as a reference book to be able to, not just to be able to source something that he said and, and to be able to verify that it's true and where it came from, but to be able to demonstrate the degree to which these sentiments are repeated. So they're not, because that's the other great defense against demagoguery is, oh, that was a once-off or the person was joking or there was a context to that. But when you repeat the same sentiment, you know, five, 10, 15 times, it starts to become indisputable that that's actually what you think. It's, it's nothing other than a true representation of your actual values. And, and so I hope that the book kind of achieves that as well. I think it does. I, I'm glad now that I didn't read it back in 2014 because I don't think I would have appreciated it as much um, as I do now. And mostly it shocks me. It just shocks me how much of a parallel there is between Zuma and the current president here in the United States. Um, and I, like, at some points I was reading the book and I wasn't sure if I was reading something that was directed at Zuma or something that was directed <laughs> at Trump. I like there's this one place in the book where you say he can fill a vacuum with empty rhetoric, but once it is all done, you're left wondering whether he has said anything at all. And, th and then you also go on to describe him as something of an ethical black hole. Um, how, how did such a man become elected? Like not once, but twice. Well, I, I mean, I, I would agree with you 100%. I think Jacob Zuma's tenure is a, a brilliant template for what's happening in the U.S. with Donald Trump. I think they are very similar in a lot of key respects, not just in terms of the way in which they use or abuse popular sentiment to serve what is essentially an entirely personal political agenda, 
Um, but in terms of the grand narrative of their entire tenure in office and how these kind of demagogues tend to affect the way in which society responds to them, I mean, what actually happened with Jacob Zuma, and I think it's not absolute, but in, in a lot of ways very similar, is happening in, in the United States, is essentially you get elected on a wave of popular appeal, which takes various different forms and has various different causes, but that's the outcome. There's some kind of populist zeitgeist that manifests and, um, you know, you're swept along by it if you're, if you're this demagogic leader. You are then, there's then a process of the shattering of the illusion. And that shattering doesn't happen to the opposition who never had any doubt as to your unsuitability mm -hmm. for office. It happens to sections of your own support base. Um, the, the nature of public office starts to reveal who you are, the, the demands of making hard, often neutral and magnanimous decisions, which you, you're kind of incapable of doing because you're demagogic and biased in a certain way, start to reveal your true character. Um, then there's some fundamental problem, uh, either a, a case of corruption or unethical behavior onto which your opponents then latch as a means to remove you from office. And it becomes a defining battleground along that particular issue. In the case of Jacob Zuma, it was his homestead in Kandla, this abuse of taxpayers' money. In the case of Trump, well, it's you know Russia <laughs> and impeachment and the various things that go about it. But that becomes the mobilizing point. You then suck in all of civil society and all independent institutions to help you deliver the outcome you want, the judiciary and so on and so forth. And how that plays out is yet to be known in the U.S., but you know that's the way in which this is, you know, the narrative tends to unfold. Um, and as I'm saying all of this, I'm realizing I'm going slightly sideways from the original question you asked. No, me, no, no, please bit, keep going. Yeah, yeah. A uh, bit detracted there. Um, but I, that was just, I mean, you triggered a, a thought with regards to the overlap between the two. And I, and I think uh, Jacob Zuma is a, is a real case study for Democrats and conservatives in, in the U.S. to look at because the narrative is playing out in, in hugely similar ways on a lot of different levels. So we're recording this on a day in which uh, articles of impeachment were uh, announced by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. And we've had all of this testimony and report writing um, up until now. And so the timing is pretty good um, to be speaking to you about this. You had mentioned earlier that Jacob Zuma resigned and that he was then replaced with Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, what, uh, how do I phrase this? Um, right now, if you, if you look at what Republicans are doing in the United States, they are still very much in support of Donald Trump as the president. They have circled the wagons. They are defending him. They are protecting him. Um, and from an outsider's perspective, it seems like that's not going to go away. And the Democrats have latched on to this fundamental problem of impeachment and this bribery scandal with Ukraine, and they've latched on to it, just like you said Zuma did with Nkandla. What I'm curious about is, how did the ANC feel 
about Zuma? Did they protect him for as long as possible and then give up on him? Like, why was there a change? What happened? No, a- absolutely. And I, and I mean, I think the critical point to bear in mind when I say that these narratives are similar is is a sense of perspective. I mean, Jacob Zuma was president of South Africa for nine out of a possible 10 years. So it took an enormous amount of time to be able to turn the tide of opinion. And the kind of trends that I talk about where, you know, sections of your core base become disillusioned with you, I don't think can possibly happen, I mean, in the in the amount of time that Donald Trump has been Three years, uh, president yeah. for. Mm-hmm. These kind of scandals um, the opposition latches onto, and, and they can last, you know, driving them, driving the consequences of them, revelations that flow out of them can last up to five years until you achieve your your goal. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you can compact it all into the kind of, I mean, America, because I think it is a far more accountable democracy than South Africa is, has managed to bring these things to the table much earlier. But the equivalent of an impeachment process in South Africa is what's called a motion of no confidence, um, which is brought against the president and you need a supermajority in parliament to pass it. In other words, the African National Congress would have to vote for it itself. And there were, I think, 12 that were brought against Jacob Zuma, each one based on a different set of you know, outrageous claims uh, or evidence against him, including you know, things that are blatantly obvious, like a, a 250 million rand personal house. Um, and they, it was only at the very last one, after nine years of pressure, that um, you know, Zuma was removed from office early. Uh, and it, part of the, the play in that was the fact that he was facing another motion of confidence and for the first time the ANC caucus was cracking and it looked like that he wasn't going to get the kind of support he needed in the House to be able to pass it. That definitely played a role. So these things take a long period of time. But the, there are differentiating factors in South Africa to U.S. politics. I mean, the, the, the sense here, which is hardwired into all our political parties, is not particular to the African National Congress, uh, in which your identity is, and identity takes a number of forms, racial being a, a big component of, of South African politics, um, you know, plays a primary role in determining who you'll vote for. Uh, is a very powerful force in South African politics, and it results in a in a kind of hegemonic dominance for the African National Congress, which is seen as the kind of true, authentic representation of Black South Africans. Their particular struggle it has these grand and well deserved liberation credentials because it played such a vital part in overcoming apartheid, but. You know, these things all carry on through to democracy. And, and 25 years after our first election, the ANC's failed to deliver on a number of fronts, but it kind of doesn't seem to matter uh, to a lot of voters mm. whether or not the president is corrupt or it's failing <clears throat> to deliver to an adequate standard. These kind of things motivate a lot of voting behavior. And, and I think to arrive at the answer to your question in a very long-winded way. That's why Jacob Zuma survived so long, because of those kind of forces that underpin politics. And it, and it takes a long time to wear them down. 
Uh, that doesn't make me sound very hopeful for the politics here in America now. Thanks a lot, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not it's not actually true. I mean, if you think, look, America's had democracy for, for hundreds of years. South Africa's, you know, we're 25 years into the game. And yeah. the, the kind and of lessons... it's a different system, right? It is a, it is a different system. We don't have the kind of direct um, elections that you have in the U.S., which I think is a problem, but... We have learned, I think, objectively, looking at other democracies around the world and how they've taken time to take form and substance, we, we've learned a lot, lot of lessons in a very short period of time. And actually, if you take a kind of detached view, we're not doing too bad on that front. No, I don't think you are doing too bad. I I, uh, I still see a lot of hope and and prosperity uh, in the future, but there are certainly there certainly is this global trend toward demagoguery that um, is frightening, and um, and we have to do everything we can to make sure that we we don't fall the way that we've fallen in the past. I mean, that's uh, certainly a risk. Can we talk a little bit about Nkandla? So it sounds like Jacob Zuma spent state's money to build himself a mansion, in, in a nutshell, right? The government, <laughs> the people paid for a mansion for Jacob Zuma, and he got caught. Did people care when they found out at first? Or was this truly the, like, like did, were people flabbergasted? What, what was the reaction in general? So, I mean, this story had a very long lifespan. Um, and by that, I mean, we're talking five or six years from the time that it first broke to, you know, its final outcome, which was which was largely responsible for, for Zuma's resignation or, or certainly largely responsible for fundamentally tainting his brand as a, as a, as a reputable president. Um, and the problem with, these kind of stories is that they don't break in a, you know, all in one package on day one. So it's not like on day one, it was revealed in a newspaper that Zuma had uh, a 250 million rand mansion. It initially started with a story that about 40 million or so was being spent to upgrade his private residence in KwaZulu-Natal and and that this was being done in terms of the law he was required i mean he it was necessary that he have uh, legitimate protection provided by the state security services because he was president it was a rural homestead it, it needed some upgrades in terms of a and a very big homestead almost farm like it needed a fence it needed cameras it needed a kind of quality control, the, the amount even then was a lot. And so, you know, people were quite shocked that this amount was being spent initially. But then over a period of, of another 18 or 24 months, it, it emerged that that amount was peanuts compared to what was really being spent. And, and what was included in these costs were a whole lot of entirely personal indulgences, things like an amphitheater, um, a cattle crawl, which is basically a kind of fenced-off area for your livestock, um, a you know, rooms for guests and a whole tuck shops for his wife and a whole lot of mad indulgences, which systematically over a period of time pushed the cost up to two hundred and fifty thousand and the pro uh, two hundred and fifty million. And the problem with that kind of 
gradual incremental breaking of a story is that it doesn't ever have the big impact that you want. So you sort of, attrition and frustration builds up over time amongst the public, but there's no dynamite moment where it's like, this is insane. There was desensitization. It's like when, um, when you say something outrageous and people are flabbergasted, but you keep saying it over and over again, people get desensitized to it. Yes. Yes. No, I would agree with that entirely. And the problem in South Africa is that, you know, we have problems that make Nkanda look like, um, you know, mild beer comp- I mean, the state of our electricity or our, um, our national airways carrier, our, our national airline, which has, you know, eaten up sort of 57 billion rand over the last 20 years, uh, make these things look small. So we have a real problem in South Africa with digesting excess because there is just so much of it. We are, we are desensitized and it's hard to tell what really matters and what doesn't. I read in an article in the Mail and Guardian that Zuma's presidency was estimated to have cost the South African economy one trillion rand, which is about sixty-eight billion dollars um, in today's uh, exchange with today's exchange rate. Um, besides the financial cost, what other debt has his presidency incurred on the South African people? Well, look, economically, the problem with Jacob Zuma was the extent to which they, uh, by they I mean his administration, centralized um, debt. So they failed to invest in the private sector in any meaningful way. They failed to free up um, the economy to be able to attract entrepreneurs, small business, um, and build a kind of diverse economic base uh, off a surplus when he came into power. Um, And by centralizing, I mean, they essentially made the government a central employer to the the extent that our wage bill, our public sector wage bill is now out of all control. It's it's sort of about almost 39%, I think, of of total GDP, which is just an insane number. Um, And the, the lack of investment and freedom for the private sector has mean that the you know the economy hasn't burgeoned the state is taking on more and more debt every year and obviously your debt to gdp ratio grows exponentially every year to the extent that you stop being able to fund all the state owned enterprises that you you know that run our electricity and our national airways and um it becomes a vicious cycle and so we find ourselves now with a huge problem. I mean, we have a 40% unemployment rate. We have a huge debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, We don't have any economic growth. The rating agencies have cut down our credibility rating to a borderline and, in in a lot of cases, actual junk status. So that has implications for your ability to be able to raise money, to service your debts. And it all becomes a big, vicious circle and... Um, that, I mean, that's where we, that's kind of the legacy of the last ten years or so, and, and the foundations of that are, are built in Jacob Zuma's tenure. In um, in a recent column, you talked about uh, a myth, the myth of the silent moderate majority, and you were talking about the silent moderate majority in South Africa, but there is this myth of the same majority in the U.S. as well. Your your lead in that column is what our politicians do 
lie, cheat, steal pales in comparison to what South Africans do, murder, rape, destroy, and vandalize. And you go on to say, our politicians are relatively very well behaved. Do you, do you <laughs> think this... I mean, that's, just, that's a pretty <laughs> amazing statement just to start out with. Okay, so that means that there's a ton of... I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but what I, what I want to ask is... Do you think that this is the model for what eventually happens to democracies, that eventually our politicians are actually not as bad as they seem, that we're actually, they are actually only half as bad as the people that they serve? No. No, I think, I mean, that is a very particular comment, particular to South Africa, and I think you must be careful to extrapolate it outwards. I mean, one of the things that sets South Africa apart is that it is a very extreme country. Mm. So almost every um, attribute of the country, and this both works in both directions, things that are great about the country, you know, I mean, under massive financial duress and a country that is fundamentally depressed on a lot of fronts, we managed to win the Rugby World Cup. I know yeah! rugby is... <laughs> I was watching that. That was so great. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, rugby won't be a sport that your most of your listeners are familiar with. It's kind of like American football on speed, but I approve <laughs> without <it's>, any pads <laughs> yes. or helmets. Yes, but you know, we won the World Cup, and that's a massive achievement. You know, there was a real system of excellence in play, and a lot of people took a great deal of satisfaction out of that. At the same time, you can have the highest unemployment rate in the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, the, and the, these sort of things manifest on a whole lot of fronts with regards to crime. We have a horrific murder rate, which I won't go into, but I mean, it, it really is insanely high and poverty is out of control and inequality, I think is one of the worst differentials in the world. And so we're this country of these really extreme kind of, you know, powerful influences on society But I, I think the thing that's missed in a lot of political analysis and the reason why I wrote that column is that there's an assumption that there exists out there uh, a kind of democratic, moderate middle ground that if only they could be ignited and infused and, and find some kind of, uh, you know, savior, democratic, middle of the way, inspiring leader to take them to war, then everything would be transformed because they would hold the majority and they would bring rationality and, and best democratic practice back to the country. Uh, it's misleading. I don't think that there is a, a majority like that in South Africa. I think a majority does exist like that in, in other places, places like America and the United Kingdom, um, simply because the extremes are not that far apart. And so the middle is naturally bigger. But in South mm. Africa, I think we're too far stretched and the majority of South Africans are actually quite conservative. Um, they are quite prone to sort of a deference, deference to power, quite patriarchal in the way in which they conceive of the state as, as a kind of fatherly figure that's there to look after them and indulge them and protect them. And they don't have a real sense of agency or individual liberty. And the truth is that that's why we don't have a, a party or a leader who's taking advantage of this because it's just not a majority. What do you think would be 
and maybe this is the you know 250 million rand question what is the solution to that then what what how do you bring these extremes together and reduce the crime rate and reduce the poverty rate and equalize things it, like how do you do it well you know that's the $64,000 question and <laughs> I, I don't think we lack for actual solutions in South Africa in terms of policy I think there's a lot of sensible stuff out there we've got a lot of NGOs that produce a lot of good things I think a lot of political parties or political players across the board have good ideas on various things the problem is actually the will to implement them which is almost always held hostage to irrational political concerns, whether you're going to compromise some alliance partner or upset a certain faction. And those are not particular concerns to South Africa. Those are ubiquitous across the world in Mm -hmm. all democracies. But um, I think this expectation that the state is ultimately the provider of your fortune, your welfare, your prospects, your opportunity – has diminished the ability of South Africans to be able to think for themselves and act for themselves. I don't know what the cure for that particular ailment is. I suspect it has something to do with time and education and democratic maturity and, to a large degree, economic growth. I think if a society becomes more prosperous, people start to behave more like agents. They have more self-confidence. Those things take time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of established democracies have had their own problems over three or four hundred years as i say we're only 25 or so years into it so you know you've got to take an objective view and say well let's see how things look or 10 and 20 years time at the at the other end of the spectrum you have to push for stuff to change now because a lot of people are in deep and serious distress and that's the south african paradox but i don't have a silver bullet answer for you i'm afraid Maybe that'll be the subject of your next book. Are you working on one right now? What are you doing right now? I'm I'm not actually. I'm I'm now in the world of market research. I I work as the CEO for a market research company in South Africa and polling people and finding out what they think. And uh, I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff and, you know, surveying public opinion and so on and so forth. So, um, and it's a new world for me. I, I, you know, you deal with this kind of stuff in passing in politics, but to actually be in the thick of the of the fight is 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 really interesting. And yeah, I'm loving it. Is it research specifically geared towards uh, politics and political campaigns, or are you branching out into other things? Well, so it's a. I mean, we'll take on all comers where the service we offer is essentially kind of qualitative market research so focus groups or in-depth interviews uh or quantitative research which is you know doing surveys of public opinion or particular markets and you know whoever needs this will provide the service to so we do work internationally we work with some um, political parties in Africa who want to see how a candidate's looking or test a particular message, um, or just on the the kind of corporate or commercial side of things. If there's a product you want to see how it plays or a particular market you want to see how it's constituted, we, we look into that kind of thing. It sounds right up your alley. 
Yes. Are you still are you still playing cricket? I'm not actually. I, I moved. I mean, I was in Cape Town for about uh, fourteen years, and moved up here about back up to Johannesburg. In fact, I'm a block away from our high school now. Believe it or not. Oh, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you could use the nets there if you felt like it, I suppose. Y- yes. So I played socially in Cape Town, but I haven't. I haven't done anything since I've been up here. I I socially I started playing socially this year, and would you believe there is a cricket league here in Minneapolis in Minnesota during the summer? Oh, really? And yes, it's quite fantastic. There are uh, two leagues, ten teams in each league. And two tournaments that get played, a T20 and a T40. So oh, that sounds awesome. It, it, it's wonderful. I never would have thought that that would have existed. So I was quite chuffed to see that. And um, it's been a long time since I've played, so still a little rough around the edges. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. No, not at all. Thank you so much for, for having me. Gareth Van Onselen writes a weekly column for Business Live in South Africa. He's a liberal, a humanist, and a published author. You can find him on Twitter as at GVanOnselen. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>